This is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host. Coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Thursday, the 29th day of February, 2024. You're probably noticing I'm wearing the same t-shirt that I wore yesterday, and that's because I did yesterday's program live just a couple hours ago, and this is now pre-recording Thursday's show, so I can edit it together with the interview with Scott Christensen, which is our feature today. This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on X, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. I guarantee it. Or triple your money back. Yes, it's a new offer. All right. What do we got coming up today? We have scripture reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And it's Thursday, but instead of Theology Thursday, we're having Theologian Thursday. Our guest today is going to be pastor, author, and theologian Scott Christensen talking about his new book, Defeating Evil. Um, and that's that interview I did yesterday. It is well worth, actually. By the time you're reading this, I did it two days ago. I did it on Tuesday. So I'm hoping that you will find that, the the interview that I did a couple of days ago, worthwhile. Um, and so that's what we're going to get to here in just a few minutes. First, our prayer of confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our scripture reading today is going to be Exodus chapter 6 and Psalm 56. 
Exodus chapter 6. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for by a strong hand he will let them go, and by a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh I was not known to them. And I also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourn. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in slavery, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their slavery. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their weakness of spirit and hard slavery. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Come, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke, to, spoke before Yahweh, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a command for the sons of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's households. The sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jamuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jachin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon and Kohath and Merari, and the year of Levi's life were 137 years. These are the sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei, according to their families. The sons of Kohath, Amram and Izhar and Hebron and Uziel, and the years of Kohath's life were 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali and Mushi, these are the families of the Levites according to their generations. And Amram took his father's sister Jochebed as a wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, and the years of Amram's life were 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, and Naphag, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. And Aaron took Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, the sister of Nashon, as his wife. And she bore him Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, and Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Aaron's son Eleazar took one of the daughters of Pituel as a wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites, according to their families. 
but was the same Aaron and Moses it was the same Aaron and Moses to whom Yahweh said bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts they are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring out the sons of Israel from Egypt it was the same Moses and Aaron now it happened on the day when Yahweh spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that Yahweh spoke to Moses saying I am Yahweh speak to Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I am speaking to you but Moses said to Yahweh, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? And now Psalm 56. Psalm 56 for the choir director. According to Jonath Elam Rehokim, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my heels as they have hoped to take my life. On account of their wickedness, will they have an escape? In anger, bring down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in Yahweh, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will fulfill thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed, my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. This is the word of the Lord. And now our reading from Daily Readings from the Life of Christ by John MacArthur. Today's devotional is Jesus' Touch and Instantaneous Healing. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Matthew 8, 3. Dr. MacArthur writes, The Mosaic law forbade the Jews from touching lepers because they were unclean. Leviticus 5, 3 and would expose healthy people to ceremonial and physical contamination. But lepers, in their social ostracism, yearned for even a brief up-close contact with another person besides a fellow leper. Jesus could have healed this man with just a single word, but he made the point of touching him. This act was truly amazing, not in a spectacular, sensational manner, but simply because the Son of Man would lovingly reach out and reach down to touch an outcast of outcasts as no one else would. The Lord bestowed instantaneous healing. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. When he touched the man's defiled body, his disease simply disappeared. Christ could have chosen to heal him in stages, as he sometimes did, Mark 8, 22 and 26, John 9, 6 and 7. But there was no necessity to do so. The picture for the eyewitnesses would have been dramatic, 
a bent-over, withered derelict with skin ravaged by scaly, ugly sores, would suddenly stand up. His limbs were now perfectly normal, his face smooth and unscarred, and his eyes clear and bright, and his voice strong and confident. Modern medical science, with all its wonderful expertise and abilities to cure, can never equal the miraculous restoration of Jesus that Jesus provided. Ask yourself, are there certain people you are wary of touching, either by physical embrace or even eye contact? What gives us the right of being too good or polished or educated or privileged to look lovingly into the face of another, to offer ourselves and our acceptance? All right. Well, as I said, it is Theologian Thursday. We're going to be talking to Scott Christensen here in a few minutes. He is the author of the new book, Defeating Evil. His previous books are What About Free Will um, and his uh, What About Evil. Uh, those are his, his previous two, two works. Um, he is associate pastor of Kerrville Bible Church in Kerrville, Texas, and uh, obviously an author and theologian. So we will be talking to him in a few minutes about his new book, as I said, Defeating Evil. Um, the publisher blurb says that Defeating Evil is revised, adapted, and condensed for a broader audience. This companion edition to Scott Christensen's lauded What About Evil shows how sin, evil, corruption, and death fit into redemptive history, exploring the storyline of Scripture and addressing practical concerns. Christensen shows that God's ultimate end in creation is to maximize his glory before his image bearers by defeating evil through Christ's atoning work. So that, that's what we're going to discuss here in just a minute. Um, I hope you find the interview edifying and helpful. Here it is. All right. Well, Scott, it's good to have you with us. Welcome to the Piney Woods. Um, how you been? How's the weather down in Texas? Uh, it's it's actually pretty hot today. It's like almost 90 degrees. Oh, wow. Hard, hard to believe. It's been snowing here all day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm well, looking forward to Southern California next week. Even though yeah, it's supposed to be it, a rainy week, it's going to be better than here. Yeah, is that what they're saying for Shepherd's Conference? Yeah, it looks like rain part of the week. Uh, highs in the okay. So. Which well, I'll be in the book cool tale most of the time. So, <laughs> all right. Well, we have, you know, we have known each other since your first book came out, which was 2016. I, I reached out to you shortly thereafter, and then we've run into each other at Shepherd's Conference a few times, and uh, and so I've kind of gotten to know you and inter interacting online, but. Uh, you are you are down there in Texas, Kerrville, which is if I believe right right outside of San Antonio. Is that? Uh... Yeah, we're about we're about a about an hour or so, kind of north northwest of San Antonio on Interstate Ten. Texas is a lot like Montana. You measure distance in time, right? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. So you are a TMS grad, but uh, before that, you were an architect. That's right. Yeah, I was I was an architect for for about ten years, 
before uh, Lord called me into ministry and uh, left a fairly successful, not really quite lucrative, but <laughs> successful career uh, in Aspen, Colorado, where I where I worked uh, for most of most of my career, and uh, moved there, moved from there to California, and finished my MDiv. And you know, how back, old were back, you at at that point? Uh, we're the same age. We're both born in '65. So yeah, I I started seminary in in '97, so I was what 30, 32. Yeah. And uh, so um, yeah, yeah. Started in in '97, graduated in 2001, and uh, worked as an intern in a church for a couple of years in in the Dallas area, and then. Served in uh, a small church in Colorado for 16 years. And now I've been the associate pastor at Kerrville Bible Church for about four and a half years. Okay. So, yeah. So, I, yeah, you were in Colorado. That was kind of threw me when I saw you were in Kerrville because you were in Colorado when we met and and started conversing. Um, I didn't really know it when you went to Texas. Um, so, that's been about four years ago. Yep. Yeah, right about the time the What About Evil book came out was when we made okay. the move. So tell me a little bit about that. Uh, what was your, what was your, were you raised in a Christian family or were you? No, no, my, well, my, my mom was, uh, my mother was born in a pretty strong Christian family. Uh, she was one of uh, 13 brothers and sisters. Um, she's got a brother who's a pastor, went to Dallas Theological Seminary. She's got several brothers and sisters who are missionaries. So she grew up in a very strong Christian home, but but kind of was a black sheep of the family and kind of departed from the faith. And really not until her later years did she really come to true saving faith. Okay. And uh, she was in a, in a hospital bed uh, and had some strange things and they did some tests and she was in in you know in the hospital room and opened up the drawer and there was a Gideon Bible there in the drawer she started reading that and the Lord convicted her and saved her right in that hospital bed. But uh, my dad died uh seven, seven, eight years ago, was not a believer, uh, did not really grow up in the church. We went to a Lutheran church for a while. Uh but then Due to the prayers, I believe, of my uncle and other family members on my mom's side of the family, um, my mom eventually started sending us to a little Baptist church, kind of a fundamentalist church in Denver, Colorado, uh, went to a private Christian school. And that's where I believe I made a genuine profession of faith, but I really didn't grow in my Christian faith until later on in my early college years uh, when I had a few crisis moments in my life and lord used that to really draw me to himself in a powerful way yeah so and then you felt the call to ministry in your early 30s yeah i worked as an architect uh for for about 10 years um in uh aspen colorado and and uh got involved in, in my local church there did some teaching and uh just really felt Felt the Lord calling me into ministry, and so we we made the move to California in 1997. Graduated in 2001, and uh, never looked back. You actually did it in the normal time. 
Most of most of my friends did like the five and six year seminary plans. Yeah, mine was actually four and a half years. I started in the middle of the year. I started in January of ninety seven and then graduated in May of, of two thousand one. And uh, so I was kind of moving toward the 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 uh, uh, um, master of theology track and had done a lot of the coursework for that Had started working on my thesis and um, and the Lord had other plans. We we just decided I went the right the right direction. And uh, and so I've stuck with pastoral ministry. People have often asked me, how come you don't, you know, get your doctorate and go teach at a seminary somewhere. But I really love the local church. I, I love teaching in the local church. I love, you know, um, shepherding God's people. And uh, I just I'd rather use, you know, my gifts and the local church level. Uh, and and I've often been tempted to to be involved in training pastors but um but i, I love i love where i'm at and uh it's it's been a great experience all right well you wrote what about uh what about free will back in 2016 um and that was excellent like i said that was reading that was when i reached out to you and and uh, had a couple of questions and and we started interacting um even as infrequently as we do, but uh, yeah. so that was 2016, and that was a great book, and that was fairly well received. Um, you know, subtitled "Reconciling Our Choices with God's Sovereignty." I've actually given away more than more than one copy of that to people <laughs> who are struggling with God's sovereignty versus man's free will, and uh, it's there is no doubt that the what about evil stems directly from what about free will but that's that's right it's in the fact the question it is the, the 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 questions are interrelated um because one of the primary questions when you're dealing with the problem of evil is who is responsible right you know and since calvinism and really the bible teaches that god is meticulously sovereign overall things, then how does that excuse him from being morally culpable uh, for the evil choices of human beings? And uh, so it becomes, you know, it becomes a dicey question uh, for a lot of people. And um, so when I wrote the free will book, I knew I had to deal with the question of evil and moral responsibility. And so I did have a, a chapter in that book where I deal with some of those questions at least in a, in a brief kind of way, because that wasn't the main focus of the book. But uh, but my editor uh, at my publisher, PNR, had suggested I should write an entire book on the problem of evil, and I said no, I don't, I don't, I don't plan to do that. And uh, he continued to hound me, and because uh, I knew it was a daunting topic, and uh, uses pushy editors. Yes. And uh, so, so I spent, you know, the next four, four to five years, really, I started working on it before uh, the free will book was published. Um, and, and so it was really about five years of, of research and writing for the, for the big thick. What and about for such a small book? Uh, yeah, it, it, uh, <laughs> it, it, it is a doorstop. Um, but it's a, like I said, I have actually read through this twice. 
and I've read through parts of it more than twice. Well, you're a brave soul. Um, because <laughs> it is something, well, I mean, most of my work since I retired from the full-time pulpit ministry, most of my work's with youth. And you yeah. have to talk about who has questions about right and wrong and, you know, the 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 famous, you know, question of is God is good and God is all powerful? Why is there evil in the world? Which yeah. you bring up in the introduction. Yes. Uh, and and so it's a it's a it is one of the biggest issues that any of us deal with in pastoral ministry. That's right. You know, um, and I, I think we underestimate the level of depth that high school students and young college students, uh, you know, uh, you know, in terms of, of grappling with these questions. In fact, when I was writing, what about evil and, you know, really kind of fully formulating my thoughts on, on that subject, uh, I was pastoring the, the church in Colorado where I was at. And we had a number of students in our high school ministry that were asking these questions. And a lot of the leaders of the of the high school group were just flabbergasted. They didn't know how to handle this. And so I began interacting with these kids. And, um, and it was really some of the questions that prevented them from coming to true saving faith in Christ. And, and, and I believe as a result of helping them grapple with those questions and come to some satisfying biblical answers to that question to those questions is actually what led them to faith in Christ. And there was a brother and sister, both brilliant young people. One got a full writing scholarship to the University of Colorado, the other to Duke. Um, and so really smart, smart kids. And uh, but they both came to faith, you know, grappling with those kinds of questions. And I baptized them and and um, and so so my own son, who's 16, has read through my book once and is already starting to go through it a second time. And so even though it's a it's a weighty, weighty book that the first one, uh, uh, you know, it's not it's not something that's that's unmanageable for somebody who's really dedicated to going through it. But, uh, oh, but certainly the new one is is, you know, geared more toward somebody who's, you know, maybe not willing to to tackle the the big book. Yeah, I have to I have to admit I've had the pre-release copy you sent me for several weeks and I didn't actually start reading it until last week after we scheduled this interview. Well, I just got my copy today. Yeah. Defeat defeating evil and uh how God glorifies himself in a dark it world. It looks to be about the same so, size as what about free will. It, it's slightly smaller than what about free will. Even even the format is a little bit tinier. So so it's it fits in your hands a little more nicely and you don't have to you don't have to use it for a doorstop. Well, I have I have the PDF from the publisher, so that's uh that's what I've been with the big big pre-release review copy watermark on it and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um as you you know, don't send this to your cousin Louie. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, so the book comes out March 6th, which uh is right in the middle of Shepherd's Conference. So that's that's going to be good. And I guess it's going to be one of the featured books down there, right? I believe so, yes. Um, so it should be one of the books of the day. Uh, presumably, that'll mean it'll be 50% off. 
so if anyone's coming to the Shepherds Conference, make sure to check that out. Uh, so should be, I, I, my guess is it'll be about $12 uh, at the Shepherds Conference. So that's a great price. That is a good price. And uh, yeah. Grab a couple of copies to uh, share with my brother elders. Um, so there are, you know, we just went over the question, you know, if God is all powerful and if he is all good, why is there evil in the world? And in your book, you outline that there are two main ways that people try to reconcile that. What what are those two ways? Well, the first way and the most common response to the problem of evil from, from a Christian perspective is what is known as the free will defense. And uh, it is largely embraced by those who would call themselves Arminians. Uh, there's there's really uh, a broader category of theologians called free will theists, and they all hold to a common view of free will. And so it would also include open theists as well as um, Molinists and, and, you know, those kind of get, you know, on the fringes of, of, of um, that particular view of, of, of free will. But, but the most common representative of, of this particular view of free will are Arminians. And, uh, and basically there's, you know, they believe that, that, how God is exonerated for being culpable for evil is that when God created human beings, he granted them free will. And this means that they have the equal ability to choose good or evil, right or wrong. And that that is what secures their moral responsibility. In other words, According to this view, you can't be morally responsible for your evil actions unless you had that equal capacity to choose a good action. And so um, in their view, under Calvinism, if God determines our choices and if we are bound in sin, uh, such that we are unable to choose God, then we are not responsible for our inability to do so. And uh, and so they believe that God gets off the hook uh, by giving us free will, but in doing so, he takes a huge risk. So that in granting human beings this capacity to make, you know, equally good or evil choices, Right. And, and that the ultimate uh, cause of those actions is the actual choosing agent, which is, in this case, the human being. And, and so they cannot be determined by anything outside of their own power to choose. So in, in the Armenian view, God has no say, really, in what choices people make. Um, God can certainly influence people, and he, in, in the Armenian view, God does influence people. They would even say that God's grace is necessary for you to, to choose Christ for salvation, but the difference is it's not sufficient. And, and so 
God will supply you the necessary grace, but you must cooperate with that grace uh, in, in order to be saved by your own free will. And so this is the basic position of the free will defense. And when it comes to the problem of evil, evil uh, those who hold to this view of free will, it's sometimes known as libertarian free will, uh, those that hold to this particular view believe that God, you know, grants us this freedom, and in doing so, he takes a risk that people are going to misuse that freedom and choose evil, and therefore God can wipe his hands of the blood, if you will, of evil that takes place in the world, uh, because ultimately it comes down to the free choices of human beings. And so that's kind of the way that works. Now, where that view really has, well, has a lot of problems, but another a major problem that it has is it has no way to really explain natural evil. So when theologians talk about evil, they talk about moral evil, which are basically human choices. You could include angels in there as well. But free will uh, would have nothing to do with earthquakes and hurricanes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And so how do you how do you exonerate God from being the cause of, you know, deaths of people that result, for example, in a hurricane or a, or a tornado or a wildfire or something like that? And, and so... So they have trouble dealing with that aspect of the problem of evil. And uh, and I don't think that becomes a problem for, for the Calvinist position. And so anyway, so that's the free will view. Uh, the second major view, and there are a variety of different views, but I think in one way or another, they fit under these two broad categories. And so the second view, which is generally associated with Calvinist or Reformed theology, is known as the greater good defense. And uh, in this view, uh, Calvinists and Reformed theologians believe that God is entirely sovereign over all things that transpire, both good and evil, such that nothing occurs in this world or in the history of the world that God has not already ordained. To take place. And this would include both good and evil. Um, and, and so God is completely sovereign to the, you know, in a meticulous way, even to the, to the minutest detail of everything that takes place. And so, so then the question is, well, then why evil? What, what purpose does God have with evil? And so this particular view would say that God would not decree or ordain any evil that does not have some greater good that is connected to the occurrence of that evil uh, that would take place, that couldn't take place without that evil. Uh, so, so, for example, I use this example in my book, um, George Mueller. A uh, tremendous believer in the 19th century in England uh, took care of tens of thousands of orphans and, uh, you know, kids that were left homeless due to poverty and, and whatnot. Well, you could say that George Mueller acted with tremendous compassion, you know, a, a tremendous virtue, a great virtue. One of the great Christian virtues, we might say, is this. The, the 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 virtue of compassion or mercy towards 
you know, people who are in dire circumstances, perhaps, you know, uh, to no fault of their own. Um, and yet that virtue could not be expressed unless there were a set of adverse conditions whereby such virtue could be expressed. Uh, you know, so for example, things like grace and mercy or even courage are virtues that that can't be expressed unless there are some adverse conditions that require something like courage or something like mercy or compassion or even grace. Um, and and so the, the greatest heroic deeds take place in the darkest of human times. That's right. Yeah, that's right. The greatest virtues are always expressed in in the face of the greatest evils that occur in, in the world. And so the idea behind the greater good defense is that God would not permit you could even I, I think it's OK to even use that kind of language um, as long as you understand that it's a willing permission. God has willingly permitted certain evils to take place only if he can get some greater good out of that evil. If God cannot get a particular good out of any instance of evil, then he will not he will not allow that to take place. He will not have ordained it to occur. And and we know of instances in which God, you know, has put a stop to evil. Right? We see that in the Genesis flood, uh, you know, Noah's day or or Sodom and Gomorrah you know, or any other instance of, of God putting a stop and basically saying, okay, this much evil has taken place and no more. And, and I think we could be safe in saying that one of the reasons that God prevents further evil from taking place is because he has no good reason for it to exist. Okay. Uh, and, and so that raises an important question, though. Can we always know what those good purposes are? And and we cannot. I don't think we can. I think in most cases, when some evil event action takes place, we may be able to ascertain some things that God might be doing in, in a particular action, but we're not going to know everything. And in some cases, we may not know at all what God is doing in a particular case. And, and I think a great example of that is is Job. You know. When you read the book of Job, you see this invisible conversation that takes place between God and Satan behind Job the scenes. Job never sees that. Yeah, Job has no idea what's going on. And and so when he's asking the why question, and, and he asks God directly, I'll, I'll, God, I'm going to put you on the stand and start, you know, questioning you like a lawyer, because I want some answers. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that when you read the book of Job, God never gives Job any answers. No, he basically, his answer is, yes. I'm God and you're not. And Job says, you're right. I repent. Yes. <laughs> and, and so so I, I make the case in my book that sometimes God does tell us why he does certain things. We see that in the life of Joseph. Uh, you know, it's very clear that when, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, um, you know, at the time, Job did not really understand why God has this happened to me. I've been sold into slavery. He ends up in prison for X number of years, you know, being falsely accused of rape 
and uh, he's finally released and, and God exalts him to the position of kind of a prime minister of, of Egypt after having answered, uh, you know, uh, explained Pharaoh's dreams and whatnot. And, and then he's reunited with his brothers toward the end of the book of Genesis. And uh, and they're quaking in their sandals, you know, wondering if he's going to use his power to to bring the law down upon them for their having mistreated him. And in the classic verse in Genesis 50, 20, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good so that he might save a people, you know, for his purposes, you know, uh, you know, and maintain his promises to Abraham and to his father, uh, grandfather Isaac and father Jacob and so forth. And, and really, it's a, it's a it's a bigger picture of God's whole plan of redemption. And and uh, and God used this this whole incident in Joseph's life uh, to preserve that plan. And so we see the bigger picture. We see the good that God is bringing out of that. Uh, but that's not always the case. Um, God doesn't always tell us uh, what goods he might be bringing out of any particular instance of evil. Um, but what we can be assured of is that God will never allow a particular evil to take place in the life of particularly the life of a believer that he does not have some greater good that he is bringing out of it, even though we may not always know what those goods are. Yeah, and and apart from God's direct revelation, we would not know the purpose of any of the events recorded in the Old Testament. You know, but because God has told us, we know why the Assyrian captivity took place we know yes. why the babylonian captivity took place because he told us but without that direct revelation they would just seem to be random events of geopolitical history that's right that's right and and i think it's important when you're reading the bible because sometimes the bible is written from the human perspective and the events that are described, especially narrative portions of the scripture where where events are are unfolding just particularly from the human perspective, and you're not really even conscious of the fact that there is a divine author standing behind this unfolding history that's directing it all. And then other times you'll read scripture where it's very clear, and this is generally propositional statements that we might read that indicate that God is in fact directing, you know, all of history. We see this particularly in Isaiah 40 through 48, 45 and 46 in particular, where Isaiah makes it very clear that God stands behind everything. And, um, and, and so you have that picture, but then sometimes you have both of those things that come together. This is what, what Calvinists refer to as compatibilism, where you see God's sovereignty on the one hand and human responsibility on the other. And, and, and again, a great example of that is Genesis 50, 20, you know, because here you have Joseph's brothers, you see the human side that they've made this decision and they intended it for evil. And because of their evil intentions, they are morally responsible for their having sold their brother into slavery. But at the same time, Joseph is saying, but, you know, but God intended this same event for good. So that there's a dual explanation for the same event. There's a divine explanation and there's a human explanation. And the human explanation is the means by which God 
ultimately achieves his purposes and uh, whether their actions are good or evil. Um, and, and so so this is what we call compatibilism, where we, you know, and, and we see many instances of that in scripture where we see, you know, side by side, you know, the divine sovereign perspective and the human choosing side of things. And, and then we get back to that question that the free will proponents would put forth of, well, if it really isn't my choice, if God has determined everything that's going to happen, how can he hold me accountable for it? That's right. So in, in the free will defense, you know, how they assign moral culpability is, is simply the fact that if you make an evil choice, you're morally responsible for that evil choice only if you could have chosen an alternate course of action, a good course of action, you know, and conversely, you know, you're, you're to be praised for the good that you do because you could have made an evil choice. Right. But that doesn't make sense when you begin to really break it down. It, it has a certain appeal to it on the surface level, but when you really break it down, it's, it, it doesn't really explain moral responsibility. First of all, if you apply that to God, it doesn't make sense because we praise God for good, and yet he has no capacity whatsoever to do evil. Right. So how could he be morally responsible uh, if he doesn't have this capacity to make a, a, a contrary choice, a contrary evil choice? Um, and so God, God doesn't God have this. True and he cannot lie. And we praise him for being true. Exactly. Exactly. So that can't be where moral responsibility lies. And I, I think the Bible gives us two anchors to make sense of moral responsibility. The first anchor is the fact that God has written his law upon every human heart. We see this in Romans chapter two, uh, in particular, where those who you know, either do or don't do the things that are written in the law, the moral law of God, you know, that the Israelites have. Uh, nonetheless, these things have been written on tablets of human hearts. And, and therefore, our conscience bears witness to us when we do good. It gives us a kind of pat on the back when we do something good. And, and, it, and red, red warning signals start going off when we do something bad and this is our conscience you know as, you know assigning guilt to evil actions and then we have this emotional feeling of shame you know when our conscience is working properly uh, so the fact is is that every human being has this the the sense of right and wrong so no one was is without excuse no one will be able to stand before god and say well, you know, God, you know, I know that the Bible says that I should love my neighbor, but but I never knew that. I, I really never knew that I should show love to my neighbor and not and not hate him. And no one will be able to stand before God and, and say, I didn't know that. Yes, you did. It was written on your heart. And you suppress that truth in your unrighteousness. And, and so that's the first plank, I believe, that the Bible gives us in terms of how we're more responsible. We have a knowledge of what's good and evil. So we know what's right and we don't do it. And we know what's wrong and we tend to do that. So that's the first thing. The other, the other thing is that the Bible always assigns moral responsibility with regard to the intentions of one's heart. 
Right? We see this all over uh, scripture, you know, in, in Genesis, the intent of man's heart was only evil continually, right? We see, and that's that's what led to the, the flood. And so, um, you know, so what that, when, what that indicates is that that God judges us based on the intentions of our heart and our culpability is, is directly tied to the evil intents of our hearts that lead to our evil actions. Um, and so I think the same principle of intention can apply to God, uh, although in somewhat of a different way, because he's not doing an evil action, but he has ordained evil to take place but only for some good or some greater good. And I think it's important to get that word greater in there because the idea is that he gets certain goods out of evil that he couldn't get otherwise unless that evil took place. And the greatest example of that, of course, is the death of Christ, right? From the human perspective, that's the greatest evil that has ever taken place. And yet God ordained it for greater good. That greater good, of course, is the salvation of a people for God's own glory. And, and so, so moral culpability in scripture is consistently tied to the intentions of the heart, whether that be God or human beings. And God can only have good intentions for all that he ordains. And humans can have good intentions, you know, or evil intentions. And they are held accountable based on those intentions and how they're carried out. Very good. Yeah. So we are responsible for our acts, good or evil. And yet God is sovereign over all and nothing happens that he hasn't decreed. Um, That's correct. So um, just from from that point, then, you know, how how do we respond then having come to understand that God is sovereign and that he is he's glorified in a tornado he's glorified in an earthquake he's glorified even when we can't see it in the evil around us how how are we to respond to that well i think for the believer it gives us great confidence it gives us great confidence, number one, that when we live in the midst of an evil world and things seem to be getting worse and worse day by day, you know, that we know that there is a God who is in control and that he has a plan. He has a plan to redeem this world that involves not only the redemption of a people for himself, but the redemption of the entire cosmos. And that that scripture has laid out this plan, and we see this plan already, and and just by reading the Bible, and so that tells us that God is going to accomplish His plan when we believe in His sovereignty, and secondly, when we believe that God is all good, He is all benevolent. We know that this plan is good, and and we could add to that God's wisdom, you know, that God is all wise. And so if we really believe that as Christians, then we have no reason to really uh, be anxious about the present, you know, and how things are unfolding in ways that we think are crazy. And, um, you know, and, and so it gives us hope to know that, that God does have 
a supremely wise and good plan. And he has the requisite power to make sure that that plan is executed perfectly to his design. Mm-hmm. And it gives us, you know, and then secondly, that, that, that relates to our own personal lives, you know, that when we are directly impacted by evil, um, on the one hand, that's perpetrated against us, we know that God causes all things, right, to work together for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. But we also see that the evil that we have perpetrated has been overcome by this plan as well, so that God's grace has been showered upon, you know, unworthy sinners who otherwise could have no hope of salvation apart from God's sovereign plan to save evil people. And uh, and so we have hope with regard to our own evil that we perpetrate, as well as being the victims of evil and just living in a dark world. So in, in reality, evil is not at the heart of the gospel, but it's definitely at the start of the gospel. Yes, because... Part of my argument and what I call the greater glory theodicy, and, and it might be useful for your listeners to 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 know this, because this is really the heart of my book, is what I call the greater glory theodicy. And there's an argument, and, and I make the argument by starting out by saying, you know, why did God create the world? He didn't have to. Um, he's under no obligation to create anything. God was self-satisfied in his own uh, you know, Trinitarian bliss. He didn't need anything outside of himself. And yet out of his own sovereign freedom, he chose to create a world. But why did he do that? Well, I think that if you read the Bible carefully and you read, you know, theologians over the course of history, uh, there is a consensus that the reason God created the world was, as Calvin said, to create a theater for his glory, uh, to magnify his glory, particularly before his image-bearing creatures. Certainly, he brings his glory to the rest of creation, but particularly he has focused on his image-bearing creatures, human beings, uh, to display his glory before them. And I believe that scripture would say that that he doesn't just create the world to display his glory, but to supremely display his glory. So once you get to that stage and say, well, God has created the world to supremely display his glory to his image-bearing creatures, well, how has he done that? Well, all you have to do is ask a Christian, where has God's glory most magnified in the history of the world? Well, you have no choice but to be drawn to the incarnation, the life, and particularly the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the central event of all history, where God generates the greatest glory for himself, is in this event of the cross, the death and resurrection of Christ. And of course, there's other things connected to that. But that's where God gets supreme glory. But the problem is, how is that giving God supreme glory? Well, it's it's the work of redemption and 
you know, there isn't, there's not a, a, a set of scenarios in any given world that we can imagine where God would bring himself greater glory than this work of redemption that can only be centered on Jesus Christ because he's the only one who could achieve true redemption in this world. But once you get to that stage, you have to recognize that redemption is not something that could ever take place unless we lived in a fallen world. Right. And so redemption, even the notion of redemption, requires some state, some adverse state that screams out to be redeemed. And so if God brings his greatest glory to himself through the work of redemption, and that work of redemption by necessity has to focus itself upon the incarnation, death and resurrection of the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, you know, um, then we have to recognize that under that scenario, the fall of mankind into evil and really the fall of the cosmos as part of the curse of Adam and Eve's sin becomes necessary. Not because it has some intrinsic necessity in and of itself. God didn't have to create the world to fall. But it's necessary to his purposes. Which is, and his purpose is to supremely magnify his glory. See, God could have gained tremendous glory in an unfallen world. He could have made conditions for Adam and Eve to have never fall, right? He could have set conditions in the Garden of Eden where it would, have been po it would not have been possible for Adam and Eve to fall. And we know that because when we get to the eternal state as believers, we will never have the capacity to sin ever again. So the question then becomes, well, why didn't God just create Adam and Eve like that in the first place? So that they never had this capacity to sin. Well, because it didn't suit his purpose for his plan of redemption, which was established before the foundation of the world. And so we see that the fall becomes necessary to God's greatest work, which is the work of redemption, which is centered on the greatest figure of history, the incarnate son, Jesus Christ, and his atoning work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead to show that he gained victory over sin and death and the curse and the devil and every evil that exists in the world. And so really the, the, the theodicy, the word theodicy means what, what is the explanation for evil? It's the simplest way to define that term. What is the theodicy of the Bible? The theodicy of the Bible is the gospel. Right. It's the it is the work of redemption. Yeah, I always and it explains people, evil. Yeah, I always tell people the, the fall did not catch God by surprise and the cross was not plan B. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So and and so um so there's a lot of implications for all of that. Um but but it's it's the anchor i believe it's the anchor for our souls and living in an evil world when we see that god in his mercy and his abundant grace has chosen to redeem this fallen world he didn't have to he had no need to supremely display his glory that was something that he freely chose to do and uh and boy we're glad he did um you know and, and so and this doesn't mean that God doesn't get glory in other ways. God certainly brings glory to himself through judgment. 
right? And he will be glorified in eternal judgment of those who do not repent of their sin and trust Christ, as well as the devil and all the, the demonic host. Um, you know, but that's not where he gets his greatest glory. Yeah. His greatest glory comes through those who he has redeemed and the whole redemption of the cosmos as a as as a, an abode for the redeemed. Right. And I, I think this is why Romans eight is so wonderful, where it talks about how the creation groans for its own redemption. Right. Because and it longs for the redemption of the sons of God. Why? Because the, the, the creation being personified there understands that in order for God's glory to be magnified in the lives of the redeemed, they've got to have a place that they can. Ice has to be restored. Yep. And uh, as the abode for the redeemed that God has created, I mean, he created, you know, one of the reasons God created the creation, the, the you know, all the animals and the birds and the trees and the, the sun and the moon and the stars, the ocean, the mountains, you know, the snow, you know, all of it was, of course, to bring him glory. But we get to participate in that as an abode that he has created for us. And and so we're you know we're not crass materialists, but we're also not these you know these wacko spiritualists that think that the material physical world is somehow evil. No, it's not. It's there's nothing intrinsically evil about the world except that it was subjected to this curse due to the sin of Adam and Eve, and God is going to restore this world uh, to this beautiful place that He. Uh, initially created it to be, but in the end, it'll be far better because of the crisis that it had to endure in order to be redeemed, and we'll have a greater appreciation for it um, because of of that crisis. So, really, when we boil it down to it, evil isn't a problem. It's not. No. <laughs> it really isn't. Evil is really an opportunity to to shine a bright light upon the glory of God and the work of, rede of redemption. It, it's, you know, to me, and I, I hope this is one of the, one of the things that your listeners will get from reading my book is that this will give them some anchors to be able to, to, uh, you know, proclaim the gospel because the problem of evil is the number one question that unbelievers have about the Christian faith, about belief in God, and it has been throughout history. Uh, I deal with some of that history in my first book, um, but uh, but we don't need to be afraid of this subject. We don't have to cower. Oh, you know, evil. You know, God. You know, God's. You know, God is not tainted by the fact that He has ordained a world where evil takes place. In fact, it is it is the fulcrum by which he magnifies his glory. And we should not be afraid to put the pieces together to see how that happens. I always kind of laugh at the unbelievers who use the presence of evil in the world to deny the existence of God, because without God, they have no definition of evil in the first place. That's correct. That's correct. Where do you get your definition of evil? What's evil? Um, Where does it go? Yeah, from? you can't you can't say something is evil unless you have some standard yeah. of goodness, you know, from which evil departs. 
And, and even furthermore, when we think about the heart of moral evil, moral evil always involves personal interactions. Right. Right. So, so moral evil has a, a fundamental personal character to it. Therefore, where does this personal moral fabric come from? It can't be just some generic notion of morality. It has to be connected to a perfect personal being who is the standard of what is good and true and right and holy. And that can only be God. It can only be a personal God who has created persons, human beings, in his personal image. And so, you know, so you can't avoid the fact that our definitions of good and evil tie back to a personal God, right. the personal God. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a good point that it isn't just, there isn't just a moral force out there. There is a moral person. That's right. Is the standard. And that's, yeah. that's, yeah, that's a, that's a new slant on that. Yes. Yeah. So. Well, I'm I'm hoping the the book does well. I know the 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 original book, the problem with evil, has been of great benefit to me, and I know to a lot of other people. Um, and hopefully, a, a slightly slimmer volume that uh, fits easier in a backpack <laughs> instead of a suitcase yeah. might be a yeah. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, I think for your listeners, if they have been intimidated by the large book, which is 570 pages or so this one is less than half that size uh it's really more between it's almost a third of the size and so you know if you want to dig deeper into it certainly check out the big book but if you're you know if you're first coming to this subject without having much uh, you know background and and really looking at the issues then then certainly this new book is is for that person you know, or the person who just doesn't have, you know, <laughs> the patience or the or the the capacity to wade through the the, the heavy thick book. Um, so I think it'll be I think it'll be tremendous for for Bible study groups. As each of the chapters have questions, yeah, you know, that know people can that. go through, and uh, so it's a great for study for personal discipleship. Uh, you know, one on one even, uh, you know, small groups. Um, I think it'll have a lot of uses. One of the things that that I like about it, and like I said, I'm only about halfway through the new book, but one of the things is the fact that it is a condensed treatment of the same subject without being simplified. Yeah, you you don't you don't you know it's not it's not we're not we're not comparing adult sunday school material with third grade social so you know sunday school material they're they're on the same level intellectually yeah it's just a more accessible treatment yes i like how you i like how you put that yeah. because this any way you cut it this is a topic that you can't oversimplify right because there's a lot of complex issues that you're the dealing heavy, with weighty topic Exactly. And and so, you know, I've tried to make the small book more accessible uh, and try to to eliminate some of the more technical language 
you know, that people can get bogged down in that I use in the in the first book. And and you know, I allude to some of the discussions that I treat at greater length in the large book. And if somebody's interested in exploring those, then they can go to the larger book. But but I think for the average, you know, church-going Christian who's not used to reading big, thick theological books, this book is going to be great. It, it's it's manageable. It's easy. I I think it's I think it's easy to read, but it's a challenge. It's going to be challenged regardless it, it because is you're going well to be thinking read. about things that you are not used to thinking about. Yeah, it is well written. Yeah. It, it is a it's a deep subject, but it's well written. It's accessible. Um, I think I, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation today. I've given away a lot of copies of What About Free Will. I've never given away a copy of What About Him. <laughs> it's just not yeah. that I felt comfortable handing to somebody you yeah. struggling with these issues. We might have several conversations where I drew yeah. from your work, but we yeah. did, I'm not going to say, here, read this. Yeah. So this new book, I think, uh, will be more more likely to hand out to someone who's got questions about this that will help them work through it. And like you said, with the with the questions at the end of every chapter, it would be very useful for uh, a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night Bible study or something. Yeah, and it has a glossary in the back, just like my other books have, in case somebody does need that. I, I don't think it's even going to be that necessary because uh, I don't use a lot of, you know, technical terminology. Um, if someone is unfamiliar with some of the terms like Calvinism, Arminianism, and they're, they're, wait a minute, what, what do those things mean? They can go back in the glossary and look at that or, you know, and, and it's well indexed. So you can look up subjects that way too. You started working on this almost as soon as the first one came out, didn't you? That's correct. Uh, I actually you started working on it two years ago. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, I started working on the the big book, What About Evil, um, really prior to my first book being published back in 2016. But this particular condensation of, uh, you know, What About Evil, I've been working on for about two years. And, uh, you know, it was hard. It was hard to condense the material and weed out things that I didn't think were important. It's longer. It's harder <laughs> yes. to make them shorter. That's right. And we know that from preaching a lot, yes, right? We know that from every 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 Saturday <laughs> when we do our final edit on our sermon notes. That's right. Uh, um, so what's what's next? What's on your word processor right now? Well, I've got a few a few projects that I'm working on. I've got a potential book on the subject of repentance that I'm trying to to flesh out. And then I I've Really, what's on my plate right now is a book that I've tentatively entitled uh, The Grand Sweep of Salvation. And it's a comparison of justification, sanctification, and glorification, and how all three of those aspects of God's work of redemption in our life kind of work to, together. I, I find that sometimes believers get confused between what what justification means and what sanctification means. And how the two work together, and uh, so I'm hoping to write a book that will help alleviate some of that confusion. It's an exposition of Romans eight twenty nine and thirty. <laughs> yeah, just about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, kind of the 
Yeah. The golden chain of redemption there yeah. for sure. What about redemption? <laughs> Give you <a> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, Scott, I appreciate your time. I know we're we're coming up on an hour since we started chatting. I told you it'd be forty five minutes. So um, <laughs> I know you got stuff to do. Well, so. you know, you know, whenever you talk to me, I get I get carried away. And, and I don't so. think we've ever had a short conversation, to be honest. <laughs> Always involved in at least two cups of coffee. Once again, I want to thank Scott for uh, being with us and, and talking about his new book. Um, I think it's an important book. I, I would urge you to get a copy. I'm going to have a couple of links to order it from uh, the Westminster Bookstore as well as from Amazon in the show notes today. So you can uh, track that down and, and get yourself a copy or just search Defeating Evil Scott Christensen and you should find a link to purchase it. Um, a good book and and uh, an important book, an important subject, and one that I think every Christian ought to educate himself about. All right, let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the second Sunday in Lent. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to keep ourselves, or to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities that might happen to the body, and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And the colic for guidance. Heavenly Father. In you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life, we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And for the unrepentant we pray. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven, given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for this Thursday. I hope you have a great day. Tomorrow's Friday. We're one day closer to going to church on Sunday. Have a great day today, and as you go through the day, remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. 
Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.